When I do something wrong, not just a mistake, but something unkind or uncaring, something insensitive or hurtful, there's an automatic process of self-image protection that is triggered immediately within me. I don't wish to believe that I've done something wrong, that that interferes with the way I see myself, so I manufacture justifications for my behavior. Now, at my best, I can bring some measure of self-awareness to this process. I can refrain from getting caught up in it, but I've never been able to stop it altogether. It is triggered every time. It usually kicks off with self-justification. Yes, I may have been insensitive, I think to myself, but I had a very good reason for what I did. This is the, I'm sorry you feel that way level. If that seems to insufficiently address my accountability, even to the admittedly sympathetic jury in my head, another thought arises. I had a good reason for what I did, but the way I did it was wrong. This is the, I never meant to hurt you level. And if I simply cannot sidestep that what I did was wrong as well as the way I did it, I reached the last bastion of self-image protection. That just wasn't me. Yes, I did it. And yes, it was wrong. But really, that is so out of character for me as to leave me virtually blameless. I am as shocked as you seem to be by, by my behavior. It just is not like me. And really... It's just not me. And if that strikes you as something of a weak defense for one's actions, just imagine if it was repeated for a second time or a third time or an eighth or twelfth or twenty-fifth time. That, I say with firm conviction, that too is not me. When, one may rightly ask, when is it me? As I read through that list of just a few of the Supreme Court's worst decisions, as clear-eyed and critical as I like to believe I am about the real problems in our country, there was a part of me that thought to myself, yes, but that's not really us. That's not really America. That's not really our justice system. That's not who we are. These were terrible, terrible actions and decisions, but a part of me wished to categorize them also as aberrations, tragic aberrations along the way in a steady march toward justice. Never mind that, as Cohen writes throughout its history, the court has often, critics would say, predictably been on the wrong side of justice. Never mind that this is only a few of the many examples in the running for the most regrettable Supreme Court decisions. Never mind the undeniable patterns supporting power and ruling against the powerless. That is just not us. And that, too, that is not us. And that and that all happened, yes. But that is not really us. And what I wish to say is not only is that response silly on the face of it, it is dangerous at the heart of it. It is dangerous. If I can convince myself that that is just not us, then we have nothing to change. If that is not me, then I 
have nothing to change, nothing to work on, no need for correction or repentance or reconciliation or transformation. And to the extent that we believe that we are somehow insulated from doing the worst that humanity can do because of the people that we know ourselves to be, Americans, liberals, Unitarian Universalists, that is the extent to which we effectively block ourselves from working toward becoming the people we know that we can be. We, Unitarian Universalists, in telling our history, routinely lift up the heroes of our tradition and the shining moments of courageous conviction. I get that. Of course we do. But as we claim the prophetic people who through their words and deeds challenge us to confront the powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love, we must also acknowledge the people in our history, our tradition, in our midst, who propped up those powers and structures of evil, acting often from what they considered a firm grounding in Unitarian and Universalist principles, ideas, and aspirations, acting from very good, if tragically misguided, intentions. Because that, too, is our history. That, too, is us. Let me offer a quick example which straddles the worlds of the Supreme Court and Unitarianism. It is the major focus of Adam Cohen's book, which you heard a selection from in the reading, and it is explored in Mark Harris's excellent book, Elite, Uncovering Classism, in Unitarian Universalist history. Both titles, which I borrowed from liberally, how else would a UU minister borrow, for this sermon. In the early years of last century, a young woman, Carrie Buck, had the misfortune to be born into a poor family, to be separated from her mother and adopted by a family that treated her less like a daughter than a servant, to be raped by a nephew of the adoptive mother and become pregnant, which caused her adoptive family to insist that she leave and to seek to have her committed to an institution for the feeble-minded, to be falsely labeled feeble-minded, which was an actual technical term of the time, in this case bolstered by severely limited and clumsy intelligence tests and the inconsistent testimony of an array of unreliable sources, some of whom had never met Carrie at all. And to have all this happen in a time period when many in the society felt threatened by mass immigration and the loss of community and family ties in the midst of a rapidly changing society. Sound familiar? Making room for those who touted eugenics, a social movement claiming to improve the genetic features of human populations through selective breeding and sterilization. Making room for those touting eugenics as a corrective scientific approach to addressing society's ills. The eugenicists offered recommendations that spoke to the fears of a society in transition and turmoil. They recommended new immigration laws to keep those whom they had decided were degrading America's gene pool 
with high levels of physical and mental hereditary defects from entering the country. Further, they recommended preventing the, quote, unfit, unquote, that were already in the country from reproducing. This included passing laws in some states prohibiting those people from getting married. It included segregation, housing those people in institutions during their reproductive years. It included laws authorizing forced sterilization in 12 states of these United States of America of those people identified as defective. In addition to those considered mentally challenged, the range of, quote, defective, unquote, traits included such things as epilepsy, criminality, alcoholism, and dependency, which was another word for poverty, forcibly sterilized for being poor. Now, there may be a little voice inside you right now saying, that is terrible, Terrible, but that's not us. I understand. But Carrie Buck also had the misfortune of being born at a time when the very institutions and people we might consider trustworthy, the very institutions and people we might imagine she could have turned to for protection and justice, these people and institutions disregarded her inherent worth and dismissed her human dignity. It's not us, you say. Let me tell you about David Starr Jordan, former president of Stanford. Let me just tell you that during that time, in the early 20th century, Jordan published 19 books with Beacon Press and was one of the most sought-after speakers at Unitarian events. He was brought up in the Universalist faith, adopted his middle name after Thomas Starr King, the Universalist and Unitarian minister who saved California for the Union. He was the most renowned ichthyologist in America and an early advocate of evolutionary science, writing a book entitled The Relationship of Evolution to Religion. He was a prominent peace activist and deeply committed pacifist. And where is he going with this? You may be asking yourself. This David Starr Jordan sounds like a wonderfully fascinating person and someone we would have invited to speak here this morning, for example, instead of our minister. But now let me tell you the title of one of his books published by the American Unitarian Association in 1902. The Blood of the Nation a study of the decay of the races through the survival of the unfit. You see, pacifist that he was, one of the dangers of war that Jordan highlighted was that it tended to kill off the best and most courageous among us, the morally, physically, mentally fit, while leaving behind the weak, the cowardly, the degenerate. His mentor, Unitarian and natural historian Louis Agassiz, was a polygenist. Polygenists believed that if people of different races reproduced, they would create an effeminate offspring that would be unable to maintain American democratic traditions. You see, some Unitarians were sadly involved in promoting this eugenic 
science. And Carrie Buck had the misfortune of being chosen to be the test case for sterilization of the unfit, never mind the shifting mercurial nature of how unfit was actually defined. And to have her case taken all the way to the Supreme Court at a time when two Unitarians, William Howard Taft and Oliver Wendell Holmes, served on the court. The misfortune. William Howard Taft and Oliver Wendell Holmes not only voted with the majority on the Supreme Court in favor of sterilization, they voted enthusiastically with the majority. Chief Justice Taft, who had served as vice president of the American Unitarian Association and president of the National Unitarian Conference, was an avid supporter of eugenics who sought to prevent, quote, reproduction by the markedly unfit, unquote, and encouraged the sterilization of, quote, gross and hopeless defectives, unquote. And Justice Holmes wrote the decision in which, based on faulty and fabricated information regarding not only Carrie, but Carrie's mother and daughter, he famously stated in words veritably dripping with smug elitism, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, unquote. Later in his life, he told a friend that this was, quote, one decision I wrote that gave me great pleasure, unquote. Author Adam Cohen quotes one critic of the decision at the time, saying that it could represent the highest ratio of injustice per word ever signed on to by eight Supreme Court justices. And this all happened at a pivotal point in history. In 1927, when this decision was made, strong critiques of the shoddy science of eugenics were being heard, and resistance to the inhuman treatment of those labeled unfit was growing. The Supreme Court could have settled the deal on the side of human dignity and protection of the most vulnerable among us. We had two Unitarians in a place of power and influence to speak to this issue, and yet this is what happened. This, too, is us. We must own all of our history and not pretend this is an aberration any more than Unitarian support of the civil rights movement was an aberration. We need to remember and acknowledge that Margaret Sanger, mother of the birth control movement, which many Universalists and Unitarians embraced, was also a supporter of eugenics. Remember that great Unitarian social activist John Haynes Holmes also fell captive to the supposed promise of eugenics for supporting normal families and preventing the propagation of defectives. Remember that Universalist social activist Clarence Russell Skinner looked toward the day when partly, quote, through eugenics, the criminal will be no more, unquote. Remember that Universalist minister Olympia Brown. God, no, not Olympia Brown. Olympia Brown said about immigrant men who were getting the vote, quote, we are the first people to try the experiment of enfranchising ignorance 
drunkenness, and all forms of vice, unquote. We need to remember that the influence of American eugenics reportedly reached the highest levels of the Nazi regime. Otto Wagner, a high-ranking economic advisor to Adolf Hitler, quoted Hitler as saying, I have studied with great interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. The point is that all of this is part of our history, too. But uh, history, it's all ancient history, right? Lots of things happened back there in pre-enlightened times. We have to look at it in context. I agree. Context is important. Trying to understand intention is important. These people, Holmes, Taft, were not soulless villains out to do evil. They actually imagined that these shocking, oppressive, destructive measures could be in service to the ultimate good. It is important to remember that and to remember that we may still fall victim to that temptation to be efficient rather than compassionate, that we are not immune to that inclination. What's past is past, we say, but the past was really not so very long ago. And what's past is present in the struggles we have today in promoting economic justice and exposing white supremacy and addressing environmental devastation. Ancient history? We know better. Though the tide eventually turned against eugenic sterilization, it wasn't until the mid-1980s that all vestiges of legal sterilization were removed from state laws. It was 2002 when the governor of Virginia, home of Kerry Buck, offered a formal apology, apology for his state's participation in eugenics. Virginia had sterilized at least 7,450 unfit people between 1927 and 1979, but even that came in second to the number sterilized right here in California. And of course, this is not just about eugenics. Watching the movie Loving regarding the couple at the center of the Supreme Court case that finally invalidated laws prohibiting interracial marriage, I was shocked to be reminded that this Supreme Court decision occurred in 1967, seven years into my lifetime before the marriage of a black person and a white person was deemed legal. And the extent to which I am shocked by these pieces of our history is the extent to which I, a white, straight, cisgender male, have been insulated from the ramifications of these injustices. And I hear the poet Langston Hughes cry out across the years, it never was America to me. Let America be America. It never was America to me. It is privilege, white supremacy, insulation that allows me to even think, that's not me. That's not us. 
The point is not about eugenics or not only about eugenics. The point is that we can commit our most grievous sins when we imagine ourselves to be in pursuit of our highest ideals. The point is that we don't get a free pass when the marginalized, the vulnerable, the oppressed rise up and point to one injustice after another. That's not us is not a sufficient response to charges of white supremacy. That's not us is not a sufficient response to the genocide carried out under the banners of manifest destiny and under the legal protection of the doctrine of discovery. That's not us is not a sufficient response to immoral immigration policies. That's not us is not a sufficient response to the routine presumption of guilt for people of color by police officers with all of the fatal and tragic implications of that presumption and the obscene inability of this society to hold police officers accountable. That's not us is not a sufficient response to a Supreme Court that predictably rules on the wrong side of justice. That's not us anymore is not a sufficient response to a history of enslavement, oppression, discrimination, and abuse of native peoples, people of color, poor people, the mentally ill, and the most vulnerable among us. You want some good news? Well, first of all, it isn't like every Unitarian of that period in history subscribed to the cruel calculations of eugenics. There were those at the time who echoed the thoughts of Charles Darwin himself, who allowed from the standpoint of natural selection that there might be practical advantages to abandoning the weak and the helpless, but that such a plan brought with it, quote, an overwhelming present evil, unquote and would mean we were abandoning, quote, the noblest part of our nature, unquote. Here's some good news. We Unitarian Universalists have inherited the living tradition that however imperfectly welcomes diversity, diversity of thought, of theology, of culture, of perspective, to keep us mindful of how things look from a variety of vantage points. We practice a religion that, however imperfectly, explicitly invites self-examination, reimagination, and possibilities for transformation. A religion that invites challenge from the margins and seeks to draw the circle wider still. We, Unitarian Universalists, however imperfectly, we show up. We show up and have shown up in struggles for justice, equity, and compassion. That too is us. If I have asked us to confront a disturbing event in our history, to honestly and forthrightly take accountability for the most difficult pieces of who we have been and who we sometimes are, it is only so that we may more wisely draw from the noblest part of our natures and passionately reach out toward the vision of the people we know we can be. Let Unitarian Universalism be Unitarian Universalism. The promise calls us forward, and this, this is us. <laughs>